you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, and you will need your Bible this morning instead of just looking in the worship guide. Um, we, we couldn't put all the text in there. 1 Samuel 17. Uh, we're going to look at one of the most famous stories, if not the most famous story in the entire Bible. The story of David and Goliath. Uh, it is likely that if you have never once darkened the doors of a church, you never cracked open a Bible, you at least are somewhat vaguely familiar with this story. Uh, if for no other reason, it's referred to every single week on ESPN. Uh, there's always a David taking on a Goliath. Um, there's always a Samford taking on Georgia. Uh, and, and, you know, you hear when that's said, it's the true David and Goliath story, but with David getting pummeled. Uh, so there's some differences there, but at least you're familiar of hearing that language even if you never grew up in church. And there's a couple of unwritten rules about this story. First, it has to be on the cover of every children's Bible. So if there's a children's Bible out there, it's got to have, well, either Jonah and the whale, or it's got to have David and Goliath, normally with Goliath being about 20 feet tall. So that's the first unwritten rule. The second is this. You're prohibited to make any sports movie without a reference to this. Because I feel like all sports movies talk about David versus Goliath. Um, who can forget this scene in Hoosiers, you know, when the small Indiana high school basketball team is going on to, to play this huge school in the state championship. And of course, the preacher comes in and he has to tell them the story of David slaying Goliath. Or from what I see as the best sports movie of all time, Rocky IV. It's, it's a movie where, you know, Rocky takes on the giant Russian. I've made my daughters watch that movie so many times. And when Rocky is facing off against the Goliath, of course, the reference is made. This is a true David versus Goliath story. So it's a story we're familiar with, maybe too familiar with, that we've kind of actually forgotten what the story is really all about. And, uh, and so what I want us to do is try to look at this with fresh eyes and to remember, what is this story actually talking about? And so before we read the story, let me just go ahead and tell you. First, this story is about God and how God saves us. Second, this story is about how God gives us courage to face any and every fear. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Samuel 17. We'll begin in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered, gathered to Soka, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soka and Azekah. And Ephes Damim and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, 
He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You would pray with me. Father, I do pray that this morning you would allow us to see you for who you are a mighty and powerful living God who saves his people. And I pray that you would show us our desperate need for such a Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would give courage to your people, that we might face any and all the fears that lay ahead. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So this story begins uh, at a place of battle, or really at the place where there should be a battle, but there's not. It's just two armies staring at one another. Uh, You have the Israelites, they're on a side of a mountain over here, and then there's a valley in between, and then you have the Philistines on that side of the mountain over there, but there hasn't been any fighting at all. They're just staring at one another day after day. Uh, The Philistines are the superior army. Uh, They are stronger in number, and they have superior technology than the Israelites. Uh, They were about as high-tech as you could get, which at that day meant having lots of bronze. They were the metal workers, working with bronze and working with, with iron. And the Israelites could not match that. So the Philistines had the clear advantage but they didn't want to, uh, to risk losing any of their men in battle. And so they came up with an idea. Uh, why don't, instead of both armies fighting with each other, why don't we each just send a champion? And that champion will go fight for each side. We pick a representative to fight for us. And, and the rules were simple. If the representative for the Philistines won, well, then the Philistines would win. And all of Israel would submit to them as slaves. And if the representative for the Israelites won, well then, well actually, you don't even have to worry about it because there's no way the Israelites are going to win because the Philistines have Goliath. You see, there's a reason that the Philistines came up with this idea and and didn't say, well, why don't we just get, you know, two of our smartest people to play chess or checkers and see who wins. They wanted a battle because they had a behemoth of a man. They had Goliath. Goliath was absolutely huge. Now, translations about his height vary. Um, If you are reading the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, uh, any of y'all bring your Septuagint this morning? It's your time to shine. Don't be shy. Uh, If you brought your Greek Old Testament with you, then your manuscript would say that he was six foot nine. If you have other translations with other manuscripts, it would say that he is over eight feet. We're not entirely sure other than this. He was enormous. 
Uh, especially when the average height of a male at that time is around five foot two. Uh, this was a guy who towered over anyone around him. He was a mountain of a man. And notice here, as the narrator is describing all of these things, he doesn't go just the great lengths to describe Goliath's size. He takes his time to describe every piece of armor that Goliath is wearing. Uh, this is really unusual in Hebrew literature, um, which typically paints a really big picture using as few brush strokes as possible. Rarely gives all of these details, but here the author, I mean, slows down and he is painting a picture describing every helmet, you know, every uh, coat of mail, the leg armor, the javelin, the shaft of the spear, how much each one of these things weighed, what each one of these instruments of war was made from. He really takes his time. If you compare this with the actual fight, it's, it's really kind of, you know, it just screams out at you that there's something different in the way he's telling this story because the actual fight scene is one sentence. That's all you read is, you know, just one sentence about David slinging the rock and hitting Goliath. There is no how we would describe a fight scene and David faced Goliath and they began circling around one another. And David got out his sling and he looked at the stone for a while, you know, and then he slung faster and faster. You get none of that. It's actually not a very good campfire story. It's just very brief. David slings the stone, hits Goliath. He's dead. All right. Uh, the Hebrew scholar, Robert Alter, who I've referred to in the past, he says that the reason the author tells this story in such an unusual way giving all of those details about the armor is because he's actually telling a story within the story. This isn't just a story about two people fighting. We're to see this about as a story about two very different ways to go about fighting. It's a story about two different ways of conquering one's fears. Uh, one way is to try and face your fears by making yourself as strong as possible and coming with the latest technologies. A second way to conquer your fear is to come in weakness with only the name of the Lord. Two very different ways to approach your fears. Uh, so that's the story within the story. But there's actually a story within the story within the story. It's like an onion. You just keep peeling back these layers. So here's the story within the story of the story. Uh, the way Goliath's armor is described, especially his coat of mail there, is a very, very unusual word. In Hebrew, it literally says this, Goliath was covered with scales. It's a rare word. It's one that would be used to describe a serpent. Goliath comes dressed like a giant serpent ready to wage war against God's people. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, if you remember, a little over a month ago, we went through the entire Bible in an hour. And one of the things we, we did was we landed at Genesis 3 for a while. In Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, we see a serpent. We see a serpent who hates God and hates God's people and wages war against Adam and Eve. And God, at that moment, he declared what would happen to that serpent. He said, a day will come. I will send someone. I will send a rescuer to come and will cut off your head. And so we're to have that in mind as we are reading this story. Because now, once again, 
There is a giant serpent who hates God's people and he wants to put an end to them. And so we're left wondering, will the rescuer come? Will someone come and cut off the serpent's head? So this is the story within the story within the story. Now, every day, Goliath, he would come, he would come into this valley and for three times every day, he'd make his challenge. He'd look around and say, hey, I defy the ranks of Israel this day, just like I did yesterday, just like I did the day before, just like I did the day before that. And if any of you have a problem with that, why don't you send someone to come and shut me up? Just like I thought. Just like I thought, cowards. And then he'd walk off. I mean, the Israelites were just paralyzed with fear. What are they supposed to do with someone like that? There's no way they could fight Goliath. They had zero chance of beating this guy. Now, let me ask you this question. Who was supposed to go out and fight Goliath for them? King Saul. Remember when we look back earlier, when uh, the Israelites requested for a king, they said, we want a king, we want a king. Do you remember why they wanted a king? We want a king who will go out and fight our battles for us. It's literally the reason they wanted a king. Saul was supposed to be out there fighting for them. And if you remember, Saul was described as being head and shoulders above anyone else. He was a tall, big man. So at least he would have had a puncher's chance against Goliath. Saul is nowhere to be found. Perhaps he's hiding in the luggage again. We, we, we don't know. He just, he's not there on the battlefield. And so and now it looks like Israel doesn't have any champion to come and to rescue them. So who will fight? Enter David. David is not here on the battlefront because he's too young. He's not old enough to even be in the army. And so David's back at home. He's watching sheep while his brothers are off on the battlefront. His dad sends him to go check up on his older brothers and says, here, give them some food, give the commander some cheese. Uh, and would you bring back news for me? I want to I hear how things are going. And so he sends David to go to the battlefront. And so David arrives here at the scene and he gets to see and he gets to hear Goliath for the very first time. He hears the taunting, but David has a much different reaction than everyone else. We read about that in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now, when David sees the Philistine for the first time, he doesn't cower. He instead gets angry. Who does this man think he is? Saying those things about the armies of the living God. These are his very first, David's first recorded words in scripture. It's the first things he ever says. It's also the very first time in this narrative that God is introduced. No one ever speaks about God until this point. And David doesn't just mention God. Notice what he calls God. He's the living God. 
Of course, all of his Hebrew brothers and sisters, of course they believed in God, but they acted like their God was dead. David here, though, he worships and he serves a living God, and this changes absolutely everything because a living God will act on behalf of his people. The Israelites looked at Goliath and they saw a reason to fear. David looks at a Goliath and he sees a reason to act. The Israelites hear Goliath's taunts and they cower. David hears Goliath's taunts and he thinks blasphemy. I will shut that mouth. What is incredible about this entire situation is the Israelites and David are both looking at the same person. It's not like David couldn't see that Goliath was huge, that he couldn't see his you know, rippling muscles there, that he, he couldn't see all of the latest technological armor that's there. It's not like David couldn't see those things. He saw those things clearly, but he didn't see himself as having to face those things alone. He saw them through eyes of faith. I serve a living God and the living God will be with me. Seeing those Goliaths through the lens of a living God changes everything. So let me ask you, as as one of the points of this story is that we would have the courage to face every fear. I want you to think of the things that you fear in this life. Think of your enemies. The enemies that look invincible to you. Do you have any anxieties or do you have any fears that just keep you awake late at night? Once you just keep mulling over and over and over in your mind, you go over every detail of their armor. In your mind, you're just, you, you see them as huge. You're like, oh my gosh, they could do this. They could do this. They could do this. All these things could go wrong. Perhaps in your mind, as you're mulling all these things over, you begin mulling over all the different strategies you could take to conquer this fear. You know, what if I said this to this person? What if I strategically did this? And one by one, all those things you realize they're not going to work because my enemy is just superior. And so you just keep mulling it over and mulling it over, going more and more into despair. Let me ask you, as you are thinking about how to conquer your fears, or if it's even possible, does God even come into the equation? I'm not asking if you believe in God or believe in God as a doctrine or believe in God as a principle. I'm asking if in that moment when you hear the booming voice of that enemy and fear hits your body, it's echoing in the valley of your heart, is God part of the equation? Is he alive to you in that moment? Or does your God only exist on the black ink of the white pages of your Bible? And he's as good as dead. Hear me, if you cannot trust God for your day-to-day salvation, what makes you think you could trust him for your eternal salvation? If you cannot trust God in these small, everyday matters of your life, What makes you think you should then trust him with the huge, eternal things about your life? God here, he's alive and he gives us courage to face our fears. David would later write psalms about this. One of the most famous psalms we know, Psalm 23, easily could be about this story right here. In which David is looking down at this valley, which is a valley of death. 
He says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. He's not denying that when he looks at that valley, for every person entering it, it's a valley of death. Yet, the living God, the Lord is with me, and I will fear no evil. Do you see the Lord as being with you when you walk in the valley? Yea, though I walk through the valley of anxiety and depression, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Yea, though I walk through the valleys of high school halls and am flooded with all the gossiping, self-absorbed, backbiting teenagers, yet you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of singleness in the city, surrounded by everyone who seemingly has family and is married, yet you are with me, and I will fear no evil. Yea, though I walk through the valley of a difficult marriage, and it's not the taunts of Goliath, it's the taunts of my spouse that I hear daily. Yea, I will... Fear no evil, for you are with me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Do you believe that? Or does your God only exist on black ink on white pages in your Bible? The words that David spoke quickly spread, and they reached Saul's ears. So David is brought before Saul, and really because Saul has no other options at this point, and there's no other options, his best strategy is to send a boy in to go fight Goliath. And he says, fine, go and fight, but at least take my armor as you're going to do it. And so just just picture the scene, the armor that should have been on Saul, that was meant to fit Saul, is now trying to be put on little David. Of course he can't wear this armor. And so he puts it off. He, he says, I, 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 can't, I can't wear this. It also shows by Saul offering this to him that Saul still does not get how to fight this battle. He tries, he's trying to fight the enemy by becoming like the enemy. He's trying to fight strength with strength. But that's not how you fight a Goliath. You fight in weakness, trusting in the name of the Lord. David refuses to wear the armor, and instead he just goes and he gets some stones. He gets five of them. I've heard all various reasons for why he gets five stones. Don't know. I will say Goliath had four brothers. We find that out later. But he gets five stones, and he gets his sling, and he goes out to face the giant serpent. Verse 41, we finally get to the battle scene. And so let me take time to read this. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. And his shield bearer in front of him, which I think is cheating, by the way. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, 
Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, I love this, never mock a teenager. <laughs> they, they come armed. <laughs> David said to the Philistine, you? You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know. He's pointing to the Israelites. All of this assembly here, that they may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into the forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Now let me ask you this. When you hear that story, in the times that you've read that story in the past, where do, you, where do you see yourself in this story? What character are you in this story? Almost everyone immediately identifies with David. Oh, I'm David in this story. I mean, I, I, the number of times I would read through this story as a kid in my children's Bible, like, I'm always David. That's, that's, that's who I'm going to be because everybody wants to be the hero. Everybody wants to be the warrior, the one who fights. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, I noticed after the Lord of the Rings movies came out, I have to do my Lord of the Rings reference every month. Uh, after that movie first came out, you know, and uh, that Halloween following the, the, when the movies came out, kids are all dressing up like Lord of the Rings characters. Who do they dress up as? They're dressing up like Gandalf because he's all powerful. You know, you've got Aragorn. I'm going to totally geek out for those of you who don't know. Uh, Aragorn, you know, he's, he's got his big sword. You've got Legolas, the elf, who's just an assassin. Uh, you, you've, got, um, you've got Gimli, the dwarf, with his huge axe. Everybody's dressing up like them. You know who I never saw any kid dress up like? Frodo. Who wants to be the guy who doesn't kill anyone? And that's actually Tolkien's entire point. The enemy is conquered through weakness. But nobody wants to be the weak person. So anytime we project ourselves in a story, we always see ourselves as we're the strong ones. We're the warriors. And so we read this story and we think, yeah, that's who I am. I'm supposed to be like David. I'm the hero. Isn't that the point of this story? Well, sort of. Absolutely. One of the points of this story is that you are supposed to have faith like David. He is obviously given to us as an example of faith that we need to trust God in order to face our fears. That's why he's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 as being an example of faith. But Hebrews does not end by saying, fix your eyes on David. Hebrews ends by telling us to fix our eyes on another person, the founder and author of our faith. That founder is the word archagos, hero of our faith. There's a different hero we are to look at. 
You see, we're not David in this story. We're the people on the sidelines, scared out of our minds. We're the ones who are paralyzed with fear. The ones who hear the the voice of Goliath coming and speaking doom over us. And we know that what lay ahead of us is just a life of slavery or death. Unless someone comes to take on that serpent. That's who we are. We're not David in this story. We're the people paralyzed by fear. And then this story comes and introduces for the first time this idea of a Savior coming to rescue his people. It's the first time we see this in Scripture this way, a Savior coming in this light. And by that I mean this, a Savior who's coming to fight for his people and as one of his people. A Savior coming to fight as a representative. David comes here in the name of the Lord. The phrase, I come in the name of the Lord. I know like today that's become somewhat of a popular phrase. It's in a lot of our songs to come in the name of the Lord. But it's actually a really unusual phrase in scripture. It's only seen twice in the Old Testament to come in the name of the Lord. Right here and in Psalm 118. That's it. You have it mentioned a few times in the New Testament, but only when quoting Psalm 118. To come in the name of the Lord is is a rare phrase. It means to come as the Lord's representative. To come as his ambassador. To come as a representative, not only representing God, what an ambassador does, it represents both God and represents the people. Does that sound familiar to you? When David enters in that valley, he's not just fighting as one of them, he's fighting for them. And so his defeat would be their defeat. His victory would be their victory. Whatever happens to him is then imputed to all the people. This is where that idea is introduced to us in Scripture. And so instead of seeing David here as just a mere example for us to follow, we really need to see David as someone, a giant sign who is pointing to our Savior, the greater David. The one who would take on someone much bigger than Goliath. We don't have time to get in this. Man, I wish we did. It's amazing. So I'm just going to tease it. After David defeats Goliath, he cuts off his head. Once again, this is a flashback to when Yahweh took on the idol of Dagon. Remember, chopped off his head. David does the same thing now to this another Philistine symbol. But Read, if you read ahead, you'll notice what he does with this head. He takes the head to Jerusalem. It's a weird detail. Uh, you read through any of the commentators, and they, they literally just kind of scratched their head. They're like, that's strange. Because Jerusalem is not even the capital city of Israel at this point. David's going to make that the capital city way down the road. Jerusalem is a, is, a, is a nobody city. Why in the world does David chop off Goliath's head and then have it sent to Jerusalem? I think what you're getting here is a prophetic seed, if you will. Saying at that place in Jerusalem, a day will come in which a serpent's head will be cut off. And it won't just be Goliath, but it will be the serpent that we have known since the dawn of time. In which someone's going to come and take on sin and death itself. Five days before Jesus was to be crucified. What we know as Palm Sunday. 
Jesus enters into Jerusalem. If you remember that scene, people are lining the streets. They're waving their palm branches. They're all shouting. Do you remember what they shouted? Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, save us. Blessed is he who, what? Comes in the name of the Lord. There's that phrase. Save us, save us. The one who, like David, is going to come in the name of the Lord. The one who's going to come and take on our enemies. They were waiting for the Savior David to enter to Jerusalem. The problem was they had the wrong enemy in mind. They think that Jesus was going to come and take on an earthly figure like a Goliath, like Rome. Rome was not the enemy. Jesus was going to take on a much greater enemy, the serpent that's been there since the dawn of time. He was going to take on the ultimate enemy of sin and death. And Jesus did not just go to the valley of the shadow of death. He went to the valley of death. He went to death itself to take on that enemy and he won victorious. And now that righteousness, that life is imputed to us. Because Jesus won, we won. We no longer have to fear any death. We don't have to fear any enemy. When your greatest enemies have been vanquished, there's nothing left to fear. All those little little fears that hit you in life, you need not fear them. When sin and death have been taken care of, we serve a living God who walks with us in the valley of the shadow of death, and you know what? He came out the other side. What this means is we can now sing with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for not just going into the valley of the shadow of death, but for going into death itself. And Lord, you conquered death. You have slain our greatest enemy of all. We thank you and we praise you for that. Because you have conquered that greatest of all fears, we need not fear anything else in this life. So Lord, I pray that we would trust in the living God. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.